welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. And we pray, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us illumination to a part of the Holy Scriptures that will be familiar to some of us, but strange and unfamiliar to others of us. Father, thank you that you have inspired all of your Scriptures from first to last. And even here, we might be formed and would hear from you. Speak to us, Father, through your Holy Word. Teach us by Elijah— Teach us by Jesus, as we would walk before you obediently and well, and understand your world as you call us to understand it. We need you now, Father. Would we know the welcome and challenge of the grace of Jesus here, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So if you tuned in to the podcast this week, the one that dropped on Wednesday morning, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, it's on the Liberty Collingswood podcast feeds. It wasn't the normal where I'm being interviewed by my wife Emily, debriefing the sermon from Sunday. Instead, you got another secret origin preacher story, this time me interviewing my good friend Matt Harmon. Matt is the incoming new pastor, new lead pastor at Liberty Church Mainline, and we had a conversation about his origins as a preacher. And you may know, if I've told you a little bit about Matt before, he and I have a lot of shared experience and years together. We went to college at about the same time. We went to seminary at about the same time. We lived a couple blocks away from each other in West Philly when we were in seminary. We're at the same church. Lots of shared experience, and I'm really looking forward to working with Matt within our network, and I also had a lot of fun talking with him this past week. And if you go and listen to the podcast, you'll hear that Matt and I share many origin threads related to becoming preachers in the first place. We went to the same church in college. It was First Congregational Church of Woodstock, Vermont. And at that college situation, the preacher was Norman Coop. 
and we were drawn in. And so with Norm, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, there were a few different things that got my attention, and this was one of the main ones. What got and demanded my attention was that the preacher, Norm Coop, portrayed a God that made demands. What demanded my attention was a God that made demands, that made claims upon me and upon our world. There were other aspects, too, namely the grace of Jesus, kind of a big deal in the Christian church. Jesus crucified and resurrected, died for our sins, rose again, so that everybody and anybody that believes in Jesus would know his forgiveness and his renovation, his restoration, all the way to a new heavens and new earth. I thought, wow, that is really good news. I really need that. I also loved how Norm Coop taught the Bible. I didn't know that was possible. When tangentially growing up, I would be in church occasionally. I thought sermons were really, really boring. Ironic now that I'm a preacher of sermons myself. But I can remember sitting growing up in New Orleans thinking, this is just really boring. And I would think about the preacher's I'm sure that your kids and your pets are great, but I don't care about them. Stop telling me stories about them. Why did I get up on Sunday morning to hear these, these stories that mean nothing? Instead, this pastor opened a passage of Scripture, read it, talked about it, and showed me and others in the room how this is absolutely relevant and vital for my life and for the world. All of those things were captivating. And going back to this God, this God that made demands, this God that I heard to whom I must give an answer, a God who claims and says that I am Lord of everything. In my college experience, what the pastor would do too was on a regular basis, read a passage of scripture, talk about it, believing that God has revealed himself truly in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament and apply it to the world. And so occasionally, when it seemed that scriptures went this way and our culture went this way, the scriptures were brought to critique and judge culture, which happens around the world in every phase of the life of the church. And in every culture, some things are affirmed in the scriptures, and some things are critiqued, are judged. And that's what I heard. And so fast forward to today. I'm doing what Norm did. And I treat the scriptures the same way as the scriptures come into both affirmation and confrontation with our world, and I've always believed that to be true since college about the scriptures. But as I come to Collingswood, I feel it differently here because there's part of my own brain, and I have so many friends and neighbors in this area that will say, that's crazy. That's crazy. That you're saying that as we take this 2,000-year-old-plus book and read it and seek to apply it to our lives and to all things, that sometimes there would be critique of us from this ancient thing. And there are many skeptics that will say, maybe you're wondering this yourself as you're tuning in here this morning. Yeah, that's exactly why I'm not a Christian. Let's not do that. It has caused so much harm in our world. Or maybe you do consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, 
but think, wow, the scripture stretches me in some really uncomfortable places. It doesn't align with other things that all of my friends and neighbors and coworkers believe. I feel stretched by this God that makes these demands. But what drew in people like Matt and me all those years ago was that I thought of it this way. A God that demands my attention deserves my attention. A God that demands my attention is precisely that God that deserves my attention in the first place. Like the old song goes, love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so at the surface level, we might say, well, it's kind of concerning that the scripture makes all of these claims on us and upon our world, but go a little deeper, and I would say that's exactly why the scriptures are so compelling. As we hear the voice of God graciously and thunderously coming towards us. And however you think about God, if this divinity, if this God, however conceived, makes no claims or makes no demands upon you and upon our world, then why bother? Why bother with such a God at all? And as we turn around, we might also notice maybe we're a little bit stuck anyway. How much, at the end of the day, can we truly trust our own bubbles that we place ourselves in? Is it possible that here in this cultural moment, we all have a little bit of an Elvis Presley problem? Elvis Presley, awesome 20th century musician. I know that you're all huge fans of him, just like I am. But if you know a little bit about Elvis' biography, later in life, his friends were in his entourage, and they were also his accountants, his advisors, his music producers, and his doctors. And so Elvis paid this retinue of people that he said, you're going to be on my payroll, and you need to give me advice at the same time. That didn't go very well, whether it was some musical choices later in life, if you know anything about fat, late Elvis, or especially doctors. So Elvis became addicted to painkillers and prescription meds, and if a doctor wasn't giving him what Elvis said that he wanted, well, he was fired, and then a new doctor was brought in to the entourage. It didn't work out really well for the king. Sorry, king, that's true. But similarly for us, we are able, aren't we, to control all of our inputs, and we can add and delete anything and everything that we don't want to be a part of our lives. And so for our minds and our bodies, for our media and for our community, we are incredibly self-selecting right now. How's that going to work out in the long run as we reinforce and reinforce and reinforce our own bubbles? Well, for one thing, it's incredibly fragmenting. One recent author said this about us in the modern U.S. Many modern Americans now seek camaraderie online, not a newsflash there, in a world defined not by friendship, but by enemy and alienation. Instead of participating in civic organizations that give them a sense of community, as well as a practical experience in tolerance and consensus building, Americans join internet mobs in which they are submerged in the logic of the crowd, clicking like or share, and then moving on. So we're becoming more isolated, more anxious, more fragmented, more tribal. And also, as this late modern experiment continues to spin forward, 
isn't it also the case that even though we think I am completely free of anything and everything that I want to be free of, but at the same point, there are large forces at work that can manipulate us. Billions of dollars globally are being spent, whether economically or in terms of consumer culture or politically, for you to think that you're free, but then land in some specific places. Not over here, but over here instead. How free are we? How confident can we be? But we turn to this ancient figure of Elijah, who at one point in the cycle of stories about him is called the troubler of Israel. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for us to be troubled by Elijah and troubled by Elijah's God. Maybe we need this God after all. So from the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 17, two parts from here, excuse me, who is the one true God and will that one true God show up? Who is the one true God, and will that one true God show up? It's true. We're doing a new sermon series from this section of 1 Kings about the Elijah stories, and I'm so looking forward to it. After a couple of topical series that I think God used in some good and powerful ways, I have been longing to get back Sunday to Sunday to Sunday, where we have a consecutive series of scripture passages where we just, like old Norm Coop, open the Bible, listen, let God talk to us, let God form us, and see what God has to say for us now. God speak to us in this sermon series, and as I've been studying 1 Kings, I have been struck about how incredibly relevant this section of the Bible is for us. So let's set the table a little bit about Elijah. I mentioned earlier, for some of you, 1 Kings might be very familiar, for others, not so much. But we can think of it like the band The Strokes. You know the Strokes? At this point, they're solidly in the dad rock kind of grouping of bands. Sue me, I have a type. But they used to be this up-and-coming band. They were a hipsterish band in New York in the 2000s, if you can imagine a hipsterish band coming from New York. And they put out singles and EPs on small indie labels, and the hype machine nationally got more and more and more robust about this band, The Strokes, and everybody was wondering, if you remember back to that period, when are The Strokes going to put out their LP, their full-length album? Finally, they did on an international label with international press push, and the name of the album was, Is This It? Question mark. Is This It? Which was a tongue-in-cheek recognition that for all of the hype that The Strokes were getting as a band, for all of the buildup, was it possibly going to be able to follow through and fulfill all of those expectations? Now, I wouldn't blame you if you know a little bit about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, reading from the beginning, getting to First and Second Kings, and maybe you might be wondering, too, is this it? Because there's been a lot of buildup up to this point. Starting at the very beginning, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, God told Abraham, wandering around, I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Wandering from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, wandering down to Egypt, becoming enslaved there. Moses in the Exodus leads them out. Joshua judges, wandering first in the wilderness, getting closer and closer and closer finally entering the promised land, God's people, God's place, and God's presence coming together 
First and Second Samuel, David is king. This is going to be great. But then it's not. But then it's not. First and Second Kings tells the story of a long decline. Solomon had some issues, and it all went downhill from there. Northern and southern kingdoms split, and after all this buildup to it finally coming together, things just fall apart. And so First and Second Kings, these twin volumes, are written to Israelites later on in exile, saying, this is how we got here. Or more particularly, this is how we left there because Israel was unfaithful to her God. And more particularly, Israel's leaders were unfaithful to Yahweh. And as we engage this section of First Kings here, we meet King Ahab, who represents a new low. Our sermon text is the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 17. Just before that, in chapter 16, we learn a little bit about this northern king, Ahab, and it's not that pretty. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and worshipped and served Baal. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, the northern capital of Israel. So what King Ahab did is he took this god from the nations, Baal, who was a storm god for the nations, and said, yeah, we were called to worship the one true god, Yahweh. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to worship Baal instead. And it's at this moment... Enter Elijah, the beginning of 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, and it sure seems like Elijah is a man who needs no introduction because he doesn't get one. This is the complete introduction here to Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe. And here's a question for you. If you know your ancient geography, where's Tishbe? Well, if you say you know, you would be one of the few in the history of the world because even Bible scholars and biblical archaeologists aren't quite sure. Is Tishbe, is that even a geographical place? Maybe it's a people group. We're not too sure. Very shadowy here. I imagine that Tishbe is how people in other parts of America think about New Jersey. Like, is that actually a place? We're not sure where it is. Does it exist? Maybe it's a figment. We've heard stories about the boss. Who can be sure? But that's all we have for Elijah the Tishbite here. And kids, you're not going to believe this, but Star Wars movies used to be good. And I think about the first one, Star Wars Episode Four, when we first meet Obi-Wan Kenobi, filmed in Tunisia on Tatooine, not too far from ancient Israel right here. And the first we see of Obi-Wan, he's this hooded figure way off on the horizon, wandering around. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he's from. We don't know what he's going to do. But then he shows up mysteriously and starts talking to Luke about the old ways. I get that same vibe here as Elijah comes and bursts onto the scene. And truly, go ahead and read the subsequent chapters here in 1 Kings this week. Elijah is a fireball. We'll learn that he is a prophet, he's a preacher, he's a political reformer, he's a miracle worker. He has some pretty striking highs and lows psychologically, too. We have enough data about Elijah that modern people like us will read 1 Kings and say, Elijah, 
What's his Enneagram type? Or how, how do we put him on Myers-Briggs? We have enough here to go on to really get a read on this guy. But then here is the conflict in this part of 1 Kings. Elijah versus Ahab. But it's not just Elijah versus Ahab, but that is a proxy, a representation of a larger confrontation. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah versus Ahab is a stand-in for Elijah's God against Ahab's God. Yahweh, the one true God against Baal. And remember that I said earlier, Baal is a storm god. And so when Elijah tells Ahab, hey, there's going to be a drought. There's not going to be any rain for a long time until my God says there's going to be. Make no mistake, this is an attack on Baal very specifically. And in ancient thinking with Baal, if there was a drought, maybe Baal was asleep. Maybe Baal had died. Baal needs to be woken up and resurrected. So all of these ritualistic sacrifices, including human self-cutting, were enacted to kind of wake Baal up again so that Baal could send some rain. But what this is here is Elijah is taking Yahweh, the one true God, and saying, we are going to attack you here on the home court of Baal. I think of DC Comics. It's kind of like Superman telling Flash, hey, Flash, you have super speed? That's nice. I have super speed, too, and I'm faster, and I can do a lot of other things. I am the real superhero here. God is the one true God. It is Yahweh that withholds, and it is Yahweh that sends rain. Who is the one true God? And this story says it's Yahweh. It's our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Although precisely this is the moment when secular friends and neighbors of ours are going to say, that's not true. Let's not go there. We've finally gotten to a point when we can get rid of all that Christian furniture that's been polluting our world for too long. Really? That there is a God up in the sky that's been worshipped for thousands of years that's driving the universe and driving us. That's just not true. But from my perspective, for such a time as this, let the church function analogously to Elijah. Let us be on the periphery. Let us be wandering around. Let us be what might seem like occasionally doing strange things. But let us serve and love everybody and tell any that would wish to hear about the old ways. And to be a gadfly. To be a gadfly in this moment here. And we raise the question, is it possible that when it comes to secularities, whether secularities on the right or secularities on the left, is it possible that the emperor might have no clothes after all? Is there a worm in the apple? Is there a hole at the center of things? Is it possible that all this materialism is hurtling us all the faster towards meaninglessness? Whether it's materialism just in the sense of consumerism, where we're buying more stuff, curating our lives, curating our social media feeds, just consuming, 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 
or materialism in the broader sense, where we come from nowhere, we're going to nowhere, we are random co collections of atoms with no larger purpose than our painting pictures over stars that are faceless and formless. We're making our own constellations out of soupy, meaningless reality. And our earth is either going to get way too hot and or way too cold. And that's all that there is. No wonder we might feel an undertow of meaninglessness. Ian MacDonald was a late 20th century British author, not a person of faith, but yet felt that undertow. He wrote this at one point, and then he later took his own life. A malignant rot has spread through the Western mind since the mid-70s, the virus of meaninglessness. Radically disunited, we live dominated by and addicted to gadgets. Our raison d'etre, our reason for, for life and living, and sense of community unfixably broken. Can it be that the materialist world, in which there is no intrinsic meaning, is killing our souls? Is this materialistic world yet killing our souls? Jesus asks, what profit is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very soul? Leslie Newbegin, a bishop in India, emphatically a person who was of faith, put it this way, if there is no point in the story as a whole, there is no point in my own action. If the story is meaningless, any action of mine is meaningless. The loss of a vision for the future produces anomie, a deep malaise of meaninglessness. What if we need this God after all? So who is the one true God, and will this God show up? That's the question. Who's the one true God, and will this God show up that drives this section of 1 Kings? And maybe you wonder that too. Will God show up? And whether you're a person of faith, a follower of Jesus, or maybe if you're skeptical of those things, we might, in both cases, have similar questions. If there is a God, will this God show up? And that show up occurs on two different axes, I think primarily, or two different directions. We can wonder, will God show up for me? And will God show up for our world? Will God show up for me? Will God show up for our world? Will God show up for me? If there is a God, will that God provide for me because I need it? And we can read this Elijah story, even the, the beginning of 1 Kings 17 here, our sermon passage, as an invitation, as a yes. God provides for his people. Even in the midst of something like a deep drought, God provides. Verse 2, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Depart from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the, from the brook. And it's not clear to us in English, but if you go back and read some commentaries about this passage, this brook Cherith is a wadi, so in that part of an arid desert world, a wadi is something that only fills with water during the rainy seasons. If God wanted to make it a little easier for himself and for Elijah, he would have said, stay close to the Jordan. But instead, God says, I'll make it even more difficult so that my provision for you, Elijah, will appear all the more miraculous. Go to that dry area. And even the brook Cherith, even that dry wadi, I will give you water there. And there's a callback going on, too, in the provision of food. End of verse 4. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there, verse 6. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. 
our radar should be pinging right now if we understand a little bit about the Hebrew scriptures. Where before have we seen a wandering in the desert and God providing things like water and bread and meat? If not the Exodus and the wandering in the desert. We're not just for one Israelite, but for all of them. God provided water miraculously from the rock and otherwise, and bread and meat, manna and quail. And so for the ancient readers of 1 Kings 17, and for us as modern readers as well, there is a whisper from this passage. God's going to take care of you. Generation after generation after generation, God has been faithful to providing for his people. And whatever you're facing right now, lean in faith toward the God of provision. And it's okay to cry out in need and helplessness, God, I need some ravens. God, I need a brook cherith right now. Do that now. Ask a prayer team member on our website. This is how I need to pray and cry out for God to show up for me and see that God does. We can also wonder, will God show up for our world? Similarly, here in 1 Kings, we don't have resolution in this passage. Elijah has said there is going to be drought, and it's going to be up to Yahweh to bring the rain. Will that happen or not? Some dramatic tension here. We don't know in this story. Keep reading, and you'll find that the answer is yes. And we wonder, our world is so messy. The headline's so depressing. Is there actually a God who can be Lord and direct all of this mess? Not even sure if God is directing things, if that God is good, because things are so crazy right now. The scriptures say, yes, God is Lord. And as we're running away from God right now, is it a coincidence that here in the late modern West, we are more hopeless and more anxious than we have ever been? In terms of research studies, behavioral psychology of younger people, Millennials and Gen Z, as far as we can tell, based on research, our young people are the most hopeless and most anxious generation on record. God, will you show up here? And we're surrounded by all of these Ahabs and all of these Baals, all of these ideologies, all of these power brokers that say you must conform here but do they give freedom? We need the one true God. So where do you struggle? Do you struggle more? Or maybe, like me, it's a little bit of both, depending on the day, depending on the season. Will God show up for me, or will God show up for our world? If you think, well, I'm not sure about God showing up for our world, but I'm going to hope that God shows up for me, we run the risk, risk of privatizing our faith when it's like, I don't know, there's a strong, powerful, loving God over all of these things, but I just need a little personal, private God right now. But if that's our mentality, we're in danger of turning Jesus into a life coach. But do you, do you want to know what's really awesome about a life coach? Although not really. You can lie to your life coach. You can cheat on your life coach. You can tell your life coach, yeah, I didn't have any sugar this week. Yeah, I ran five marathons. And that life coach isn't going to know. And you can fire that life coach if that life coach starts to annoy you a little bit. You are still in charge. But let Jesus be Lord over all of your life. 
and push back against that Elvis Presley problem of just being in your own bubble where you are controlling and adding and deleting all inputs at all times. Or flip it around, you might think, well, I have some hope that there is a loving God that directs lovingly our broken world, but this is me. And I have very little faith that God is going to show up for me and provide for me. Maybe God will do that for all those other people when they're hashtag blessed, but maybe not for me. I just don't believe it personally. But if that's the case, the God that you're believing in in those spaces, in those moments, it's a personless force directing things that has very little to do with you. So come back to the God of Elijah. And this is where we'll begin to wrap up. If God shows up and is Lord, both of us personally and of our world, that means that this God makes demands and claims us and challenges us to change both our walk and our worldview. Both our walk, the way that we live, and our worldview. If this God truly is Lord, this is a God that we need to obey. And obedience to this God is commended here in this passage in verse 5. Elijah, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And scholars will say this is a very specific formula called command and compliance. When in the scriptures you see an obedience of a person or people given using the same wording as the command itself, that command and compliance formula is a way of saying that they really obeyed a lot. To the fullness of the command, they obeyed, not just a little. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And we should worship and obey this God with all of our soul and mind and body and strength. So it is for us. Give your mind. Give your body. Give your behaviors to this one God, to the one that is worthy of it. How is your walk? And also your worldview. Let God be Lord of everything. And we'll talk about this in coming weeks and seasons of life here at Liberty Collingswood. Let's fight the urge to be cafeteria Christians. Let's fight the urge to treat the Bible like a buffet and say, well, okay, this is my ideology, politically or otherwise. Here's where the Bible is very much in line with that. So I'll take, oh, look at this over here. That's great. And then over here, there's some scriptural green beans. Don't really like that too much. It doesn't align with what I already think about what life, the universe, and everything is. I'll leave that over there and just keep going down the buffet line. No. God says, let me be Lord of all of it. And here's the beauty. Because God makes demands but also gives grace, God gives us grace and space as we would seek to align with him. I was listening to a podcast this week, and once again, we lament another shooting of a black man at the hands of police. We're going to pray about that in prayers of the people here in just a moment. But I was listening to a black pastor, I think he was in South Carolina, and he says, I love being a Christian, but it makes me hard to understand by both my friends, sometimes on the secular right and on the secular left, because I believe that I can be both pro-police reform and pro-police. And in my church, we can have conversations and actual dialogue about these things without flaming. So I'm pro-police, and this pastor had a relationship with the sheriff in town and did a lot of outreach events and counseling for police officers, first responders. 
Andy said, you better believe we need police reform in our country. He said, you can be both. And the church is a place, a third-way worldview of grace and space under the authority of Jesus. Make no mistake, that is exactly who this Jesus is. After he's resurrected and ascended in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And earlier than that, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. But this Jesus is also full of grace and mercy. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just as God sent ravens to provide for Elijah, our Heavenly Father has sent Jesus to live with us, to die for us, to rise again, canceling the penalty for sin, breaking in a new heavens and new earth for us. And truly, this love so amazing, this love so divine, demands our soul, our life, our all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.